Welcome to CUCC's Sermons for Everyone. No matter who you are or where you find yourself on life's journey, we're glad you've tuned in, and we hope you find meaning in this week's sermon. So today is World Communion Sunday. The first Sunday in October is set aside across several of the world's largest denominations to proclaim and celebrate our global oneness, our unbreakable bond that crosses all physical and and imaginary borders. It's a deep recognition that when we step forward to receive communion, we do so not as individuals, but as the body of Christ tied together, all the children of God from every time and every place. While there may be movements and moments to to think, shop, support, local communion, the Lord's Supper, it's our reminder that we're part of something larger than St. Charles, larger than Illinois, larger than the United States even. We're the church, the body of Christ, all of us, and so today we're going we're gonna to look deeper into that shared bond at the Lord's table. And to begin with, I wonder how many of you have attended a worship service in a different country? Raise your hands. That's a lot of you. Um, how many of you have celebrated communion at a service in a different country? Les, do you guys want to shout out some of the names of the countries? Italy. Italy. Guatemala, Israel, Virgin Island, Palestine, Israel, Haiti, Mexico. Yeah. The first time I celebrated communion in a different country, it was a day I'll never forget. Save this story for a rainy Sunday just like this. I just graduated high school, was on a mission trip with a group from our church, and together we drove from Vancouver, Canada to Ensenada, Mexico. When we got to Mexico and met up with our partner organization, there were a ton of different projects that we could get our hands into, and a couple of days into the trip, I had the opportunity to join a group who had organized a local basketball game. And I played high school ball, I was ready, I was all in. And then I found out that the game was gonna take place against inmates inside a Mexican prison. I had no idea what I had signed up for. So the next morning we arrive at the prison, spend at least an hour going through security, getting prepped and all the the do's and the don'ts. And uh, thank goodness the team was made up of mostly grown men, because I was already 6'4", but probably 50 pounds lighter than I am now. We finally made our way through the prison, and it was, it was literally straight, straight out of a movie. In the middle of the prison, there was a central yard with three-story walls surrounding it, armed guards walking the roof line, and in the middle of the courtyard was a basketball court and bleachers. Their team was already on the court, and I would bet a hundred or so inmates had turned out to watch us play. 
The honest truth is I remember very little about the actual game other than we got beat pretty bad. And there was one, one play in which I unintentionally caused an uproar in the prison. So I was wearing a Kobe Bryant jersey. And near the end of the game, I hit a fun little fadeaway jump shot from the, from the corner. And the inmates gave me a little like, Kobe, Kobe, cheer. And I felt so cool, like really cool. And then the next play, the guy that I just scored on, he gets the ball and isolates me. And everybody knows what's happening. He's not going to get shown up in his own house. So he walks me down to the baseline, wastes no time making me look like a fool, steps back, hits a three from the corner. The inmates are loving it. It's loud, it's fun, it felt like any other game so much so that as I ran back down the court next to the person who had just embarrassed me, I forgot the do's and the don'ts, and I smacked him on the butt. I know. In my defense, it's a pretty normal thing to do, just not while visiting a Mexican prison. So there's a ton of laughing, right? I think mostly at me. I'm glad that I don't speak any Spanish because I can only imagine what their jokes were about. And for the rest of the game, instead of the Kobe chant that I had kind of become accustomed to, every time I touched the ball, they chanted something, something, gringo. <laughs> so what does this have to do with communion? I just wanted to tell that story eventually. <laughs> No. Well, after the game, we joined a bunch of the inmates for a chapel service that was held on the rooftop of the prison, and together we received communion. And it almost mirrored that moment in the basketball game where, once again, I feel like I just completely forgot about the do's and the don'ts, right? the insiders and the outsiders, and we're just humans deeply connected in the mystery uh, of, of this meal. It's this time together. Communion, the, the bread and the cup, the people. You know, there, there likely hasn't been a single day in the past 2,000 years in which someone didn't celebrate communion. Somewhere in the world, in some form or another, people are constantly gathering at the Lord's table for this mysterious meal. And because of that, there are as many different ways to share in this meal and just as many different ways to think about this meal. When it comes to the way communion is served, some of the most common methods, you'll recognize some of them, right, are, are intinction, which is just fancy talk for, for dipping. Right? And then there's a distribution method in which pieces of bread and individual cups are passed throughout the pew. Some of you may have grown up in a, in a tradition in which there was the common cup method. You'd receive bread, eat it, and then all take a sip of a shared or common cup. The list goes on. From full-blown potluck meals to pre-packaged communion delivered by Amazon which I'm sorry to say you will be experiencing later in the service. People have been setting the Lord's table in different ways for thousands of years. 
And the differences are not only found in the way the table's set, but also in what we believe is taking place at this meal. One such belief is known as, write this one down, transubstantiation. I got some Catholic head nods. Which simply means a change in substance. This view is held right, most commonly by the Catholic Church, and it teaches that while the bread and the, the cup remain bread and wine in form, at the communion table they actually become the body and blood of Jesus in essence, in substance. This view, as was challenged in many Protestant churches, replaced it with a belief commonly known as consubstantiation which simply means that there's no change in the bread or the cup, but Jesus is present at the meal, just as Jesus is present everywhere, all the time. You can imagine there are a myriad of other ways to explain this sacred meal. Different ways to set the table, different ways to talk about what's happening. And with such a multiplicity of options and witnesses, you might expect a, a progressive pastor like me to say something along the lines of, no matter who you are or how you celebrate communion, it's all good. Not quite. All right, not, not quite. I see the looks. Well, that may be true in most cases. I do believe there is one clear way to do communion wrong. And the Apostle Paul, he tears into the church in Corinth for doing it. Now I warn you, Paul's a little frustrated with this church right now. It's a church he started, and while he was off starting other churches, let's just say they, they let things get out of control. So he writes them a letter, and we'll pick up in 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 17. Now, in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For to begin with, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are some divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. Indeed, there have been fractions among you, for only, for only so will it become clear among you who are genuine. Hear this part. When you come together, it's not really to eat the Lord's Supper. For when the time comes to eat, each of you goes ahead with your own supper, and one goes hungry while another gets drunk. What? Do you not have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you show contempt for the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I commend you? In this matter, I do not commend you. For I received from the Lord what is also what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body that is for you, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 
Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be answerable to the body and blood of the Lord. Paul says, examine yourself and only then eat the bread and drink the cup. For all who eat and drink without discerning the body eat and drink judgment against themselves. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Raise of hands. I'm sure not read in this church before, but that last section about examining yourself, discerning yourself. How many of you have heard that read in a communion service before? Often in a different context, but, but read, right? So Paul's ticked, right? We, that's just, Paul's angry. And if you've read a bunch of Paul's letters, Paul runs a little hot. Just, just in general. I hope you were able to pick up on, on, on one of the issues, I guess, in Corinth. And, and here's a little background information. Their church was made up of diverse people, Jews and Gentiles, men and women, the wealthy. Corinth was one of the wealthier cities. You may remember some of it from our, our run through, through Revelations. Feels like yesterday, but it was probably two years ago. So it was the wealthy and also their servants. Church was a place where they all came together. And their Lord's Supper, their communion, was often a full meal, a love feast. The problem is the wealthy members were bringing their own food and drink, and they would enjoy a feast while the poor would remain hungry at the table. Not only were they eating better food, but the wealthy in the Corinthian church would even start the Lord's Supper early so that those who were laborers in the community would, would come after they had finished work. And by the time they had arrived, the wealthy were already well fed and, and even drunk off the wine, as Paul would say. And Paul's having nothing to do with it. He says when you come together, it's not really to eat the Lord's Supper. For when the time comes to eat, each of you goes ahead with your own supper, and one goes hungry and another becomes drunk. What, do you not have homes to eat or drink in? Or do you show contempt for the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? It's a common meal, a meal in, in memory of the Son of God who humbled himself to the point of touching those with contagious skin diseases, to the point of sharing meals with, with tax collectors, little people, prostitutes, anyone society had forced to eat alone. A common meal, a table big enough for everyone, everyone, everyone. And yet there were some in Corinth who would dare to gather for a fancy feast in the face of those who are poor and hungry, and in doing so, Paul says that they're showing contempt for the very one who instituted the meal. And he challenges them to examine themselves, and only then to eat the bread and the cup. He says, for all who eat and drink without discerning the body, eat and drink judgment against themselves. This language of examining yourself, discerning the body. And by body, Paul is making a two-part plea here. Right? He's calling them to discern the meaning, the value of the bread. 
right? The, the body, the meal. But he's also saying you must discern or wisely consider the church, right? Like all of the church, the body of Christ. And in case the church in Corinth missed that nuanced point, Paul drives it home on the very next page, the very next verses as he says, just as a body, the one has many parts. It's many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body. Whether Jew or Gentile, slave or free, we were all given one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division among the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you are a part of it. And so on this World Communion Sunday, we remember that we are part of one big global body of Christ. No matter of race, nationality, socioeconomic status, no matter who we are, where we were born, where we now find ourselves living, no matter what cards a person was dealt at their birth, in their baptism, they were fully and wholly brought into the body of Christ. On this World Communion Sunday, we're reminded that our family of faith extends outside of our physical walls that are nice to be back inside of, right? That we're a part, one part of the capital C church and that our care and our responsibility extends beyond our, our literal table. This week, and, and God bless them, our, our children gather to make sandwiches for Lazarus House and night ministry. And other members of our congregation serve those meals together in Chicago and I commend their work to you. It's important. And yet, I, I've got to be honest, too. As some, and I include myself in this, as some of the most privileged people living in one of the most privileged countries on Earth, all the while knowing that the UN estimates that 25,000 people die every day from hunger-related causes, I think Paul would have some words for us. Like the church in Corinth, I think Paul would tell us to examine ourselves, to discern the body, and then, and only then, to eat and drink the bread and the cup. And one might ask, what does that sort of discernment even look like? Right? How much does one family or one church need to do or give in the fight of, of hunger or poverty in the world? It, it's, it's such an immense problem. It's not going to be caused or, or cured by, by a single act of generosity. So, so how much is enough? How are we to examine ourselves in the face of such immense problem? And, and I hear you, and, and Julie and I struggle with this too as a starting point or an idea to get the, the wheels spinning. If you were to turn 
your budget over to a stranger. Or turn it into a pie chart, share it on Zoom, and then send it as a YouTube video out to the whole world. What would that complete stranger identify as the priorities of your life? What would they be drawn to? What would they see? What would they not see? Or better yet, if we, the church, I always feel odd talking about the budget when I know that the treasurer's here and members of council. If we as a church, as a, as a community, turned our budget over to, to strangers, maybe to a congregation in a different country, what would they identify as, as, our, as the priorities of our life together? What would they see? What would they not see? There's no magic number, percentage, or ratio. The magic happens when someone gets a sneak peek at our priorities, and they're surprised. They're caught off guard. They're inspired, convicted by by how much of our time and resources are used to help those in need. It's not about hitting a number. It's about shocking the world with reckless generosity to the point that they think we've lost our marbles. It's about reorganizing our life together, our identity even, so that we come become more concerned with what we have to offer than what we may want to consume. That's how the Jesus movement catches fire. That's how the Spirit of God is felt and made known in the world. So here's the deal. I couldn't write this sermon with integrity and not do something about it. Right? You can't talk about food justice and then just move on. So I'll tell you what I did this week. I sent $500 to, to Chef Oguk Otieno, a Kenyan pastor who I lived with in Nairobi and have been partners in ministry with for the last 15 years. I sent him $500 on behalf of the church. And while we were sleeping last night, a congregation made up of refugees from the Congo who are living in one of Nairobi, Kenya's most impoverished neighborhoods, they gathered for their Sunday morning service. They celebrated world communion with us. And following the service, the whole community ate their fill. Over 250 members of their congregation enjoyed a full meal. And for some of them, it will be the largest meal they eat this week. It happened like six hours ago. And, and you know what they did for us? They prayed for us. In the early hours of the morning, a refugee congregation in Kenya was praying for you, for our church, by name. And friends, I think that's what world communion's all about or at least what it could be all about. As Paul wrote in his letter to the Ephesians, there is one body and one spirit, right? Just as you were called the one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And so from a Mexican prison to a refugee community in Kenya, all the way to St. Charles, the body of Christ, the church, together. Amen.